Let's just pray as Vicky comes to read and pray for Pete. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in this course on <coughs> learning to be a disciple, we can uh, learn from your word. And as we uh, hear your word tonight, we pray that you would speak to us from it and speak through Peter as he teaches your word to us. Amen. Amen. The reading's taken from James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, on page 1214 in the Bibles. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for the reading. Thank you, Andrew, for the prayer. And uh, thank you very much for the invitation to come here this evening. I always enjoy working with Andrew. Uh, in fact, I'd rather hope to be working with Andrew a couple of months ago. And we fixed up that it, uh, before my coming here, he would come to Peter Lee to speak at uh, Back to Church Sunday. I, I don't know whether you made much of that, but it was quite a big... Well, it was. It was a very big thing for us. And... Um, I got a very sheepish phone call about two weeks before the event at the end of September. Andrew saying, we're in the semi-final, and the final is uh, on that day. Um, I wonder if uh, you'd spare me. And uh, if you want to read about it, actually David Winter wrote in the Church Times a very amusing um, description in the diary there about the sort of panic of, uh, would they get through to the, the semi-final to the final, which uh, they did, and uh, would we be able to find a replacement preacher? And David Winter was, uh, uh, was very kind uh, in coming and uh, replacing Andrew. I think the, um, the nicest thing about it was when Andrew rang me up, when it was definite that they got to the final, uh, it was a very sheepish phone call on his part. And uh, he said, Peter, I think you're the only friend that I've got that I could let down in this way. <laughs> So I kind of took it as an inverted compliment. 
But it's nice to come to a new place and to be in uh, new surroundings. Um, Anne, uh, for her speech day this year, invited a man called Gervais Finn to Durham High School, and he used to be a school's inspector, so he was always going around various schools. And he described going to a particular place where he'd never been before, a school with the uh, title of St. John the Baptist Roman Catholic Primary School. And he was met at the school gates by a very formidable headmistress with the name of Sister Maria Teresa. And Sister Maria Teresa said to him, Mr. Finn, I will very shortly show you around the school, but first of all, I'll give you coffee in my office. And while she was making coffee, the phone rang, and she walked over to the phone, picked it up, and said, Good morning. This is the head of John the Baptist speaking. But I've been invited to speak on James 3. So let's, um, let's do that. Page 1214, verses 1 to 12. I've been sent the sermon series by uh, your curate uh, with all the details of what you're going through. It looks a terrific sermon series. The only disadvantage from my point of view of being given James 3 is that we come in uh, perhaps not aware fully of the context of that chapter. And the context is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, is writing to the whole people of God in the ancient world. This is not a, a letter to a small group of Christians in Corinth or in Colossae. It says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It says to all the churches among the nations. And in chapter 1, James appeals to Christians not to be double-minded. And he gives a hint of his concern. Everyone, he says, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which is able to save you. So there's a hint about the word, the importance of the word, that James is going to elaborate on in chapter 3, our chapter. And James, in a succinct verse, describes the problem of the tongue. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men. What we say, says James, does not match up to what we believe. Now, this is still a huge problem in the Christian church today. On Tuesday, the 16th of September of this year, an author called Jamie White wrote in the Times about the American presidential election, and in particular about the roles that Christians were playing, the, the very significant Christian vote in America. And he describes himself as an atheist, and he goes further than that. He says, it is simply not possible for people who know as much as modern Westerners do to believe in the central tenets of Christianity or any other major religions. And he challenges Christians in this way. All Christians fail to act, he writes, on their avowed beliefs. Suppose you believe that heaven exists and that only some of us will qualify to live in it forever, as the vast majority of Christians claim to. How would this affect your behavior? He answers his own question. It would depend on what you thought were the admission criteria for heaven. But whatever you took those virtues to be, they would utterly dominate your life. When everlasting bliss is on offer, nothing else matters at all. People, people who believed in heaven would surely act quite unlike those who do not. Yet, he goes on, the expected behavioral difference is not to be observed. The vast majority of Christians display a remarkably blasé attitude towards their approaching day of judgment, leading lives almost indistinguishable from those of us open non-believers. Put simply, they fail the behavioural test for belief. 
Now, there's a lot in that article that the Apostle James would disagree with, but he would agree with that last sentence, that Christians, and in particular the Christians he was writing to, fail the behavioral test of belief. And uh, James makes the comment, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be so. And that's my uh, text, really, for the first half of this sermon. My brothers and sisters, this should not be so. And so James writes, the Apostle James uh, puts pen to paper in order to remedy the situation, to show uh, how Christians can go about using their tongue, speaking what is good and right and true and honouring to God. I've got just two headings for you tonight, the first of which is don't be complacent. Interestingly enough, and you'll have gathered this from the reading, that James begins by challenging those who are teachers of God's word, saying that those who are involved in teaching God's word will be judged more strictly. It's a great privilege to be involved as a teacher of God's word, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a house group leader, a reader, a preacher, whatever it may be. But with privilege always comes responsibility. And it is simply that, that uh, we will be judged, we teachers will be judged with greater strictness. There's no room for complacency there. My son-in-law is a clergyman and uh, he described in a sermon how, and he presumed, every preacher has nighttime vigils when they lie awake worrying about uh, something that they've said in the pulpit, a phrase that was misspoken, uh, a passage that was very poorly taught, or uh, a word that was very sharply said. And he commented that uh, he's asked quite often if he gets nervous before preaching. And he said, uh, I don't get nervous about the congregation, I don't get nervous about the numbers of people that are there, but I do get nervous about this responsibility of having to preach and teach the Word of God. And the application, of course, is a very simple one, namely that... uh, Uh, congregations should pray for their preachers and teachers as well as Sunday school teachers and um, uh, readers regularly, praying uh, particularly for the people in the pulpit week by week, whether they're part of the the home team here or people like myself coming in from outside. We all very, very greatly need your prayers. And James goes on to continue to highlight the problem. We all stumble in many ways, says the Apostle, but especially about the things that we say. Even Apostles stumble, says James. We all do it. We're all uh, guilty in this area. So the writer gives four pictures here of how great a problem this is and to show there's no room for complacency. The tongue, he says, is uh, small but strong. Two pictures for this one. When we put bits in the mouths of horses, we make them obey us, and we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as a second example. They are large, they're driven by strong winds, and yet they're steered, they're guided by a very small rudder. Just to take the one ship that I've got uh, statistics for, one of the biggest warships in the world is the U.S. Navy aircraft USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. She weighs 91,400 tons. She's 1,092 feet in length. Her speed exceeds 30 knots. Um, she's powered with nuclear power, 280,000 horsepower nuclear reactors, and it takes over 6,000 men and women to uh, um, keep her going in the water. The cost exceeds $2 billion, and that's without the 90 aircraft that it can get on the deck. And yet it's guided by one man at the helm with a rudder, 
a thousandth the size of the ship. A tiny rudder controlling a massive ship. So it is with the tongue and the body. The tongue is 0.4% of a person's total body weight, uh, and as there's no painless way of confirming that, I suggest you don't even bother to try. But uh, the tongue has a power quite out of proportion to its size. And then James says, not only is the tongue small but strong, it's also small, little but lethal. And again, two pictures for this. First of all, the forest fire set alight by a small spark. We're all aware of the pictures that now come to us annually, usually from California, uh, sometimes from Australia, of uh, forests that are just ablaze. In fact, uh, there were uh, pictures in the news last night. Uh, A forest fire right out of control. And uh, that's, says James, a picture of what happens when a sentence, a word is said, and it, uh, it uh, it spreads alarmingly. I'll give an illustration of that. In 1899, four newspaper reporters met at a railway station in Denver. They were from four different newspapers, and uh, they'd come to get a story. Uh, They'd gone to the railway station because in 1899, that was where all the news tended to gather. By the end of the evening, they had no story. So one said, why don't we make up a story? And so they all agreed they'd go to a hotel, and over a few drinks, they concocted a story. Uh, a man called John Lewis of the four of them was the one who came up with the idea that they, these four would uh, pass themselves off as engineers uh, on their way to China from Denver. And uh, the Chinese government had a plan to pull down the Great Wall of China in order to symbolize international goodwill and to welcome foreign trade. And so the story uh, was written and it took root. The Denver Times headline was The Great Wall of China Doomed, Peking seeks world trade. It was phony, but the results were devastating. All the newspapers all over the world reported it. Groups in China rebelled at uh, what they uh, imagined was happening. Foreign embassies were attacked. Foreign missionaries were killed. And within two months, an international army of 12,000 had joined forces to go to war. And the bloodshed that followed was called the Boxer Rebellion. All started by four journalists wanting to make up a story. And, of course, we've seen something of the disastrous effect of a kind of whispering campaign with regard to banks uh, and the whole credit situation. Sometimes uh, the whispered rumours having absolutely no foundation in fact, but um, very difficult to stop once they've got underway. The tongue can have a devastating effect, the same effect as a forest fire. And then the last picture he gives is that of taming animals. We humans, says James, are very good at taming animals. We can train chimpanzees to drive cars or to drink tea. We can persuade uh, dolphins and killer whales to jump through hoops. We can get pigeons to take messages right the way around the world. I don't know if you remember the Cadbury's Dairy Milk advert. We can teach a gorilla to play drums, just like Phil Collins. Uh, We can do all sorts of things, taming animals, but we can't tame the human tongue. So what then, what hope is there for us? Actually, with all that I have said, you know exactly the truth of it. Every one of us in this church tonight has had the experience of saying something, and if we could have just pulled the sentence back, or taken the the phrase or the word back, we'd have given anything to do it. But of course, it's not possible. 
all of us have stories along those lines. Abraham Lincoln once said, I would rather remain silent and be thought a fool than speak out and remove all doubt. (laughs) The answer to our dilemma is the end of verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. With it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. And that's my text for the closing minute of my sermon, in God's likeness. And it links with the heading. If the first heading was don't be complacent, the second heading is don't despair. Don't despair because even though we stumble, even though everyone stumbles, there is one who has shown us God's complete likeness, Jesus Christ, God's only son. There is one who, when he taught, people marveled at his gracious words. People were amazed at the authority of how he spoke. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. This man is the master horseman who can bridle the tongue of our body. This man is the master pilot who can steer the ship of our lives. And to him we come. And James in this letter is simply echoing the teaching of Jesus in Luke 6.43. The good man brings good things out of the good that is in his heart. The bad man brings bad things out of the bad that is in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus came as the exact representation of God's being. He showed us the true likeness of God. And as we come to Jesus, so he gives us his spirit to mold us into God's likeness. Jesus, through his spirit, enables us to conform, day by day, very slowly, we may feel, but to conform to God's likeness. And that is really the challenge of the final verses, verses 10 to 12 because it will eventually be clear, it will be obvious, whether or not Jesus is controlling our tongue. It will be clear who or what is the source of our life. Water, says James, either comes from uh, fresh or salt. There's nothing in between. Fruit will inevitably reflect, reflect the tree that it comes from. If you've never taken the step of coming to Jesus before, do uh, talk to Andrew, the vicar, or anyone in the leadership team. But actually... All of us need to come to Jesus every day to ask him to keep us from those damaging, destructive, terrible results of speaking wrongly and to shape us into God's likeness so that what we say will be to the praise of God's glory, to the exaltation of his son, our saviour, to the edification, the building up of the people of God for the good of society that we live in and for the extension of God's kingdom. Let's pray as we sit. Thank you, Lord, for these words from James 3. We begin with confession for how far we have fallen short in the things that we have said. We ask your forgiveness for the offense that we have given time and time again. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that as we commit this week into your hands, as we commit our lives into your hands, So you will lead us to Christ, who will enable us to speak graciously, to speak his words on your behalf, that your name may be praised and honoured and glorified. For your glory's sake. Amen.